So he's very concerned that they would get the right kind of start. And he addresses a number of critical questions in his epistle to the Romans. Questions like, what is salvation? And boy, is there any book of the Bible that gives you a clearer picture of salvation than the book of Romans? What is salvation? And then, what part or where do the Jews fit into God's eternal plan? So he talks about God's sovereign selection of the people of Israel as a chosen nation. Because remember, the church at Rome was largely a Gentile community. So he's saying, okay, you've got to understand why Israel is a big deal, where Israel fits in all this. And then how does the power of the gospel affect the lives of those who believe it? You talk about a practical book. Romans goes in, first chapter of the Bible I ever memorized was Romans 6. Maybe like some of you, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And Romans 6, 7, 8, so practical in the matter of sanctification. So that's what Paul had in mind as God uses him to write this book. In fact, let me just give you a little summary. And if you're a note taker, I'm going to pull up some, Lord willing, pull up some notes on the screen here in a minute. But this is just some background, okay? This is just extra stuff. But um, Romans chapters 1 to 3 deal with man's problem. And, and what is man's real fundamental problem? Sin, yeah. Man's problem, sin. We're lost. So that's in chapters 1 to 3. Chapters 4 and 5, you have God's solution. Okay, what's God's solution to the sin problem? Another S. What do we call that? Salvation, yeah. So Romans chapters 4 and 5. And you probably know verses from Romans 5. You know, God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's interesting, too. By the way, God commendeth his love. Um, commends, that's present tense, right? Interesting, a lot of times I'll see a gospel tract, and if it's, uh, if it's got Romans 5, 8 written out, God commendeth, they'll put in brackets um, an explanation of commend, and they'll write um, proved or, or showed. That's all good. Those are good synonyms. But my issue with it is always the tense that they put it in. They put it in past tense. And commendeth is present tense. And it's this idea. God shows his love. God, uh, God demonstrates his love. That's like right now. What happened 2,000 years ago is what affects my salvation today, what achieves my salvation today. So you have uh, Romans 4 and 5. That's God's solution. Then you have Romans 6 through 8, man's transformation. And, and what is the uh, theological term for becoming more and more like Jesus and other S? Sanctification, yeah. So that's in Romans 7 and 8. And then in Romans 9 through 11, you have um, God's faithfulness and the word sovereignty. He specifically focuses on his selection of Israel as a chosen nation and how through them he would bring about the Messiah. So that's chapters 1 through 11. Now we come to chapter 12. And I gave you all that as background. And if I were to say to you, okay, what do caterpillars... Butterflies and Plato have in common. You might think, well, they're colorful. I've had kids say they're all squishy. Okay. All right. Well, they are really the key to understanding the passage of Scripture we're going to look at tonight. They're great illustrations of where we're going. I'm just going to cover two verses tonight. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans 12, 1 and 2. In fact, I'm going to quote it to you. You may know it. And if you've never memorized it, I would urge you to memorize these two verses. You know, it's amazing. Sometimes I'll go back to these passages, and we think of these as, oh, yeah, that's good stuff for youth camp. That's good stuff for, you know, teenagers, like a teenage afterglow or something. That way? Okay. Straighten up. All right, I'm getting this. See, even the preacher gets told to straighten up. We better? (laughs) And now we got a PowerPoint. Great. Okay. 
Um, we can go to the next slide. The one, the one I want is the one that says the sacrifice of love. Oh, I'm doing it, am I? Yeah, okay. Let me get it there. I forgot. I'm, I get to be in control. Perfect. All right, sacrifice of love. So you think of this as a message often for teenagers, but I will tell you, as I was listening to the pastor say, hey, I'm asking people, what is a disciple? And they're, they're coming up with pretty benign answers, rather, you know, frankly, rather lame answers. And he's thinking, okay, being a disciple is like the most important thing for the Christian. And sometimes we don't have a really good handle on it. And I think he was spot on when he says, you go to Romans 12, you find out what a disciple is. Let me tell you, verses one and two are where we enter this whole arena of being a disciple. I'm calling it the sacrifice of love. And you'll see why here in a minute. Let's look at Romans 12, one and two. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be a transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove, that means to know without a doubt, you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. All right, so what does all that mean? Well, let me break it down with you. Let's start with this tonight. If you want to take notes, I'll make it easy. Sorry, I did this at the men's retreat. They get along great with me. I think I have, I must have Spock-shaped ears. I'm not sure, but. All right, we are uh, starting with motivation for love tonight. Motivation for love. Notice the wording. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. The word beseech is a word that means to call alongside, either to admonish or urge on. When I was a kid, I played football, um, tackle football, and I'm fourth through, tw- four through sixth grade. And I remember my coach was trying to utilize my height because I was, well, by seventh grade, I was six feet tall. So I was always kind of a tall kid, this height by 10th grade. So my coach is wanting to use me as a tight end. And I remember I was, I was taller than everybody else, but I was a skin and bones too, right? And so, and he would put me on defensive end when we were playing defense. You know, back when you're little, you play both sides of the ball. And so uh, I'm playing defensive end. And I remember this one time, this, this running back from the other team is a really stout, mature ahead of his years kind of guy. And he comes running at me and he lowers his shoulder pad, knocks me over and picks up about eight yards before somebody tackles it. And my coach said, Tozer, get over here. So I came over there, yeah, coach. He said, that guy is your responsibility. When he comes around, you get him. You got it? Yes, coach. Slaps me on behind and sends me back in the game, right? Well, they figured out, hey, that's the weak link. So guess where the running play came the next, the next call, right? Right at me again. And so I'm trying to get ready, and pfft, guy knocks me over, picks up another 10 yards. That's a first down. And sure enough, I heard it. Tozer, get over here. Come over. Yes, coach. He says, that guy is not going to stop if you don't stop him. They're going to come at you all night unless you stop. You get that? Yes, coach. Get back in there. Slaps you on the backside, sends me back in the game. Well, guess where the play came the next time? I mean, you can get this figured out, right? Right at me. Not now. This time, I don't care. No, no matter what, this guy's not knocking me over, right? So I remember I threw my legs behind me, and I drove my shoulder pad into the guy and knocked him to the ground, and it was a tackle for a loss. And guess what I heard? Tozer, get over here. Come over. Yeah, coach. Good job. That's what you're supposed to do. And then he slapped me on the behind and sent me back in the game. Okay, you know what that is? That is a picture of the word beseech. Sometimes it's an admonition. Sometimes it's encouragement. Very interesting. It's a term of pleading. 
Sometimes I've heard this passage of Scripture preached like this. Young people, you better dedicate your life to God. If you don't, you're robbing God. Well, frankly, there's precedent for that. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, what? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, you're not? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body and with your spirit, which are whose? They're God's. You belong to God. So... That's 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. You can make a point that, yeah, you belong to God. But that's not the tone of this particular passage. He says, look, I'm pleading with you. I beseech you. By the mercies of God, what's the motivation for what's being called for here? God's kindness. Not God's judgment. God's mercy. Think about this. At that time, they didn't have New Testament books yet. Not, at least not in circulation. Not many would have been existent yet. But they've got the Old Testament scriptures. Sometimes people say, well, you know, God in the Old Testament, he's very judgmental and he's just full of en- vengeance and anger. But, but God in the New Testament is much more merciful. Folks, he's the same God. Amen. He said, I am the Lord, I change not. And I want to tell you, God shows himself as merciful in both Old and New Testament. For sake of illustration, let's go back to Exodus 33. These people would have known these passages. So we're in Exodus 33, and this is where God is appearing to Moses. And I want to pick up um, an Exodus. By the way, if you're not used to finding your way around the Bible, Exodus is easy. It's the second book of the Bible. So if you, got a, you can pick a Bible off the pew rack there and go to Exodus chapter 33, second book of the Bible, find chapter 33. And I want to pick up in uh, verse number... 13, if you will. Exodus 33, look at verse 13. Now therefore I pray thee, if I found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way, that I may know thee, that I might find grace in thy sight. Consider that this nation is thy people. And he said, my presence shall go with thee, and I'll give thee rest. And he, Moses said to God, he said to him, if thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. In other words, if you're not going with us, I'm not going, God. Verse 16, wherewith shall it be known, or wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not that thou goest with us? So shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord said to Moses, I'll do this thing also that thou hast spoken. For thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. Boy, that's, that's a great declaration. God, God says, I know you by name. You know of all the... Sorry for the distraction. Of all the... Billions of people in the world... God knows you by name. Do you know he knows your DNA? In fact, he says the very hairs of your head are all numbered. <laughs> in my world, that's changing every week. Uh, and and uh, they're diminishing, all right? God knows the very hairs of your head. He knows everything about you. Notice in verse uh, 17, the Lord said to Moses, I will do this thing that thou hast spoken of, for thou hast found grace in my sight. I know thee by name. And he said, I beseech thee. Show me thy glory. Now that's an interesting prayer request. Lord, show me your glory. I circled the word glory. Hmm, what is God's glory? We think of the Shekinah glory showing up in the, in the tabernacle. And that was the pillar of fire, if you will, that hovered over the mercy seat. Okay, show me your glory. Well, he goes on to say in verse 19, he said, I'll make my, all my goodness pass before thee. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee. And I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. I'll show mercy on whom I'll show mercy. 
He said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see my face and live. The Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me. Thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass that while my glory passeth by, I'll put thee in the cleft of the rock, and I'll cover thee with my hand while I pass by. Now, something very significant here, okay? Notice the word glory. Moses says, here's my request. Show me your glory. And what does God say in the next verse? Verse 19, I'll make my what pass before you? Goodness. And then he says, and then verse 22, while my glory passes by, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock to, to protect you. So I want you to see something. God's glory is his goodness. God's glory is his goodness. Meaning what? His character. What is God like in character? Well, above everything else, the angels around the throne do not proclaim mercy, 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 and they don't say grace, grace, grace. What is the chief attribute that the angels adore around the throne of God? Holy, holy, holy. His goodness. First of all, he's good in character. And then he's good in benevolence. He's good. He's absolutely good. The problem for you and me, all have sinned and come short of what? The glory of God. What's his glory? His goodness. That's why the Bible says all our righteousnesses are filthy rags. Let me explain something. This is why you can't get to heaven trying to be good. The book of Romans itself explains all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In fact, he says there's none righteous No, not one. That's Romans 3.10. In Romans chapter 3, verse 12, he said, there's none that doeth good. No, not one. People say, what do you mean? There's none that doeth good. I mean, what about somebody like, you know, um, and and people always come up with, you know, the most renowned religious person they think of. What about Mother Teresa? What about Billy Graham? You know, they'll throw out somebody like that. What does the Bible say? There's none righteous. No, not one. You know something? Unless we are made righteous by God, we have no righteousness of our own. How can a person be made righteous? It's very interesting. If you go to the next chapter, the Lord answers, follows up to Moses' request. Uh, Pick up in verse number 5, chapter 34 now, Exodus 34. Look at verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud. He stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. He said, and the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord. That's the name Jehovah. Okay, I am that I am. The Lord God, that's Jehovah Elohim, the Lord, the covenant keeper. God, Elohim, the creator. And then what's he say? The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity, the sins of the fathers upon the children, upon the children's children to the third and fourth generation. You know, if, um, if you have a business card and... I, I use business cards to mark my scriptures in my Bible. I just picked up my daughter Heather's card. And Heather has a little photography business. So I picked up the card here. Okay, what's the first thing you usually see on a business card? The name, the name of the person. And then, what's something else you might see on a business card? Okay, so you'll find things like, what do they do? Okay, so this is advertising her little photography business she has. And then, what other things might you find on a business card? Yeah, contact info, like telephone or email or Instagram or whatever, you know, an address, those kind of things, all right? Isn't it interesting? What God gives Moses here is like a business card. He says, I am the Lord, I'm the Lord God, and what's the very next thing he says in verse 6 about himself? The Lord, the Lord God, and then what? Merciful. That's interesting. He says, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. Here's my glory, Moses. First thing you've got to know about me is I'm merciful. 
God says he's not willing that any should perish. You know, the Bible's really clear. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. That's in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4. But we're also told in the scripture, God hath no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Okay, so why does he say the soul that sinneth, it shall die? Well, the wages of sin is what? Death. It's right out of the book of uh, Romans that we're studying tonight. The wages of sin is death. But I want you to see the motivation for love here is God's love. I wrote down 1 John 4, 19. You may want to jot that one down. The very first verse of scripture I ever taught my girls, I wanted them to memorize some Bible verses when they were kids. The very first verse, and here it is, we love him because he first loved us. Why do we love God? Because he loved us first. It's a response to him. None of us just like, hey, I think I'm going to wake up and love God one day. We love him because he first loved us. And I want you to understand that when God appeared to Moses, he said, let me tell you this about you, about me. I'm merciful, I'm kind, I'm gracious. God does not want to judge the sinner. But God must judge sin. So how does God juxtapose this whole dilemma of he, he loves man, but he certainly loathes sin, he detests sin? Well, that's why the Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin, that's Jesus Christ, became sin for us. He took all of our sins upon him. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Do you know why Jesus died on the cross? It, it wasn't just some martyrdom. It wasn't some, you know, like, wow, self-sacrificing act of love. He literally became sin for you and me. He literally assumed all of our sin on himself so God the Father could judge the Son in our place. That is why on the cross he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The only time in all of history that there was a, a, a rifting, a, a, a severing of the fellowship between God the Father and God the Son when he became sin for us. I heard a story years ago. I was out in uh, California and visited uh, Lancaster Baptist Church on my way to a, to a meeting somewhere, and it happened to be their 20th anniversary. And I picked up their uh, visitor's bag that they had, and in there was a CD from their pastor, Dr. Chapel, and he told this story of, that I'm about to relate to you, and it was so powerful, I thought, I don't, I don't know where to find that story. So I went back, and I listened to it on CD, and I would stop it and write it out. I wrote it out verbatim until I could learn the story. It was that good. He told of a man named George Wilson who was from Philadelphia. This was in 1829. 1829, our country was in a time of real economic crisis. People were out of jobs, sounds a lot like 1929, but this was 1829. And this man named George Wilson had fallen on hard times. He'd lost his job, he had no way to provide for his family, and he did something in his desperation that shocked all of his friends and acquaintances. He went into a post office in Philadelphia, and he held up the clerk at gunpoint, demanded that the clerk give him all his money. Well, the clerk's handing over the money, but as in the process, the clerk tried to resist, and, and George Wilson shot and killed the clerk, and then fled with the money in his possession. Didn't take long till the police apprehended him. He was arrested and tried, and he was sentenced to be hanged for murder. Well, George Wilson's friends all went to bat for him because George had had no previous criminal activity. They thought, that he must have snapped. This is just not like him. So they appealed through all the legal channels possible. And finally, the case was taken all the way up 
to the President of the United States, at the time that was Andrew Jackson, Andrew Jackson decided to pardon George Wilson. So a presidential pardon was written. Well, when word came, the sheriff said, good news, Wilson, the president has decided to pardon you. Wilson's response to the sheriff shocked the lawman. He said, I don't want to be pardoned. I want nothing of it. He said, Wilson, you're going to die. I don't want to be pardoned. The sheriff wasn't sure what to do. He took the case back to the lawyers. They went back to the president. The president didn't know what to do, so he deferred to the Supreme Court. And Chief Justice John Marshall at the time wrote these words. A pardon is only a piece of paper if it is not accepted. Three days later, George Wilson died by hanging. And the tragedy is his lifeless body hung from the noose at the gallows. Just a couple hundred yards away, on the sheriff's desk, was the piece of paper that would have made him a free man. But he wouldn't accept it. Let me say to you that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Let me tell you, God has done everything necessary for your salvation. He's made all the provision in the world. The question is, will you believe him? Will you trust him? Will you accept his pardon? I'll tell you when to do that. The Bible's really clear. It spells it out. Behold, now's the accepted time. Behold, now's the day of salvation. You don't even have to wait till I'm finished my message and give an invitation. Right there where you're seated, you could call out to God and say, God, I admit I am a guilty sinner. I'm never going to be good enough to get to heaven. There's, there's nobody I realize that can be good enough. Only you, God, are good. God, I believe that Jesus died to pay for my sins. I believe his blood was sufficient to cover my sins. I believe that he rose again. And I'm asking you, based on what Jesus did for me, will you please save me? That can happen right now while I'm still preaching, and I hope it will. Don't wait for the end. Call on him now because God says now's the accepted time. Now's the day of salvation. By the way, and I don't usually ask this in, the, in you know, everybody looking around, but for those of us who know the Lord as Savior, how many of you can testify? There was a day I trusted the Lord to save me. I don't deserve to go to heaven. I know I'm a guilty sinner. But I believed on the Lord for his righteousness, and I can say, thank God, I don't deserve it, but I will go to heaven one day because the Lord saved me. If you know that, would you lift your hand for a minute? Yeah, and I know. If you're saying, well, I don't know if I should raise my hand or not, here's the typical thinking of people. Well, I'd like to be able to say that, but I mean, I mean, I don't, I don't know that I'd go to heaven. I, I mean, I hope I would, but, but what? I just... I just don't know if I'm good enough. That's the problem. You'll never be good enough. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But if you'll repent of your sins, you'll recognize I am a guilty sinner, and you rely on Jesus Christ. Your simple faith is just the receiving of the gift of God. You can be saved, and I pray you will. For many of us tonight, that is the motivation. Motivation for love. Jesus Christ died for us. But then I want you to see, he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, and we're back in Romans 12, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. This is dedication to God. 
Dedication to God. Present your body. That is an interesting term, present. Uh, think of a, a nurse helping a doctor. So there's surgery going on, and the doctor says to the nurse, uh, scalpel, hands the scalpel over. Um, sponge, whatever the implement is. Th- think of a mechanic who's got an assistant. You know, they used to call them grease monkeys. I'm sure that's not a politically correct term. But, you know, the, the guy who's assisting the mechanic, and he's under the hood, and he says, I need a 3-8 socket. I need a Phillips head screwdriver. The guy assisting is there to hand the tool. That's what the word present means. In fact, the, the language here, the verbiage is, it's a one-time action with ongoing ramifications. You know, back when I was a young man, I made a decision to yield my life to the Lord. I, I, Isaiah 6.8 was the verse that God used. In fact, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about it. It was a missionary that came to our church. It was either a Wednesday or a Sunday night. I, I can't remember which now, but it was a night service. Just a handful of people there. She was a missionary to Japan. She worked with women and children. And I remember when she came, she said, you know, I often get asked, how would you become a missionary? She said, I volunteered. People, what? She said, you know, God doesn't make anybody serve. It starts with volunteering. Now, you, you, you're not necessarily going to be a missionary because you volunteer to be one, but it's got to start with surrender. And she quoted Isaiah 6, verses 8 and 9. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then said I, here am I, send me. And she said, it's interesting. When God said, I'm looking for a servant, Isaiah said, how about me? And then the next verse says this, and he said, God said, go and tell this people. She pointed out, notice this. God didn't say go and tell until Isaiah first said, here am I. She said, you know, in God's army, he doesn't draft, he recruits. She said, think about this, people who've been in military service. As a general practice in the United States, we have a voluntary um, military, armed forces, voluntary service. There have been exceptions. We all know Vietnam, World War I, World War II. Those were times of draft, but um, Korea too. But, you know, by and large, our military is raised by volunteers. She said, God doesn't draft, he recruits. And I remember we were singing a song back in um, my high school days called A Volunteer for Jesus. You know, I don't hear that song a lot now, but I, that, was one of, that was my favorite hymn when I was a kid. Let's see if I can get the tune. A call for loyal soldiers comes to one and all. Soldiers for the conflict, will you heed the call? Will you answer quickly with a ready cheer? Will you be enlisted as a volunteer? Did you ever heard that song before I sang it? A lot of you had. So I'm thinking of that song, and I remember one day we were coming back from a, a, a school outing, and my Bible teacher was a real outgoing, gregarious kind of guy, and we had stopped at this rest area on the New Jersey Turnpike. And we walked in, there were a couple of um, National Guardsmen in there, they're all in uniform. And so my Bible teacher said, hey, you guys in the army? They said, yes, sir. He said, thanks for serving, fellas. And he said, I'm in the service, too. And they looked at him. He's in plain clothes, you know. And they said, you are? He said, yes, sir. He said, I'm in the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. One of those men stood at attention and saluted him. He said, that's the best service of all, sir. Amen. He was a fellow Christian. And I remember... My Bible teacher was not ashamed to be identified with Christ. He wanted everyone to know. And then I remember, yeah, just like those guys were in military service because they joined up. My Bible teacher was in God's service because he joined up. And this missionary that night was telling us, hey, I joined up. 
And I got thinking about, what about me? Have I ever joined up? And I got to tell you, I was really nervous. Because I had a feeling that if I surrendered to God that night, he might call me to be a preacher. By the way, spoiler alert, I became a preacher. I was scared to death. You know, yeah, I didn't want to be a preacher. You, see, you didn't like preachers? Oh, no, I love preachers. I thought it was great, just not for me. You know why? I was scared to death to get up in front of people. But it's amazing, that night, I remember the invitation was given after my pastor preached. He said, you know, our sister gave a great challenge tonight from that Isaiah passage, and I wonder, how about you? Have you ever volunteered? And I went forward, and I don't know who else responded that night, but I knelt. We had steps just like this, and you know, our church, I don't know, we might have had 40 to 60 people on an evening service, something like that. But I remember I came down front, and I'm just sobbing, I'm bawling. And I said, Lord, I don't know what this means, but whatever you want to do with my life, here am I. Send me. Dedication to God. Interesting, by the way, it says present your body a living sacrifice. Living sacrifice. That, that sounds odd, doesn't it? We call those oxymorons. Y'all know what oxymorons are? Some of you are like, I know what morons are. But I'm talking about oxymorons, okay? Words that seem contradictory. You know, like um, traveling through Louisiana, I saw a sign, jumbo shrimp. Made me laugh, because if you say that guy's a shrimp, you think he's small, but jumbo means what? Big, you know? I saw another sign one time. It was um, a golf shop, Metal Woods. Okay, they used to make uh, fairway woods out of persimmon. Later, they switched to titanium, now carbon fiber, and also they call them metal woods. I saw another sign that made me chuckle one time. It was military intelligence. But I won't tell you why that made me chuckle. Okay, so uh, motivation for love. I'm just kidding. Dedication to God, but then separation from the world. Separation from the world. Notice this. He says, I, I beseech you to present your bodies a living sacrifice. He says, holy acceptable unto God and not conform to this world. What does holy mean? 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, all manner of conduct, in all the ways you live. You know, it's amazing. We, we live in a world where Christians are becoming more and more and more worldly and thinking that's, you know, somehow that that's the way we're going to reach the world. What does God say? Love not the world. He's not talking about the people. He's talking about the system. Love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's 1 John 2.15. God says, don't be conformed to this world. I asked you at the beginning, look, the caterpillars and butterflies and, and um, Plato have in common. Thank you, Plato. And I forgot to bring my Plato tonight. I have some out in the car. I forgot to bring it. You know, if I had a little, and I, I had nice purple Play-Doh, so it would have shown up really well. If I take Plato and I start rolling it up, I can shape it however I want to. In fact, I got one of those little plunger things that had the little screen in front of it, and you can make you know, noodles, you can make star shapes. And here's the thing. When you put that Play-Doh under pressure, whatever the shape is that you're forcing it through, that's the form that's going to come out, right? Guess what the word conform means? Pressed into a mold. Pressed into a mold. Be not conformed to this world. Let me tell you, we're living in a world right now that's working to have everybody hear the same things, think the same way. Now I want to tell you what the Lord says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You know what the world does not think like today? It does not think like Christ Jesus. But as Christians, we're told, don't be conformed to this world. So there's to be separation from the world. I want to ask you, when people look at you, do they see a noticeable distinction? 
You know, you're to be an example in honesty. Can people count on you when you say one thing that you mean one thing? Jesus said, let your yay be yay. You know, your yes be yes. Your nay, nay. Your no, no. You don't have to say, I swear to God. No, if you say yes, it means yes. How about other areas like, you know, temperance? The Bible says to be an example in temperance, self-control. That's not just refraining from substances that control your life. How about anger or lust or pride? You know, how about principles like modesty? And I'm not just talking about modesty and dress, but yeah, but that's a question too. I mean, is your dress sensual? How about your attitude? Is it drawing attention to yourself? Is it a, we, we all know the people that they always want to, they want to one up somebody else. You know, somebody tells a story and they have, it's bigger and better. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Huh? So separated from the world. How about in your choices of entertainment? How about in what runs through your mind in private? How about the kind of apps that you access on the phone? Are you conformed to the world or are you separated unto God? So present your body as a living sacrifice. But then there is, number four, transformation of life. Transformation of life. So the sacrifice of love is this. We love him because he first loved us. It's only our reasonable service to present ourselves back to him. I mean, he died in agony that we might be saved. So now we present ourselves in turn back to him. And then what does this mean? Be ye transformed. Very interesting. The phrase, be ye transformed, comes, uh, comes from one Greek word, and you'll know the English equivalent. The Greek word is metamorphomai. What's the English scientific word? Metamorphosis. And what's metamorphosis? That's where one creature completely changes form. That's why I put the pictures up here. Caterpillar goes into the cocoon and comes out a butterfly. Think about this. If I had a caterpillar up here, and you put a caterpillar on the carpet and say, okay, we're going to watch till this caterpillar gets over to the other side. How long is this going to take? You know, the caterpillar is going to, that'd be a long trip, right? That's not, nobody's really paying for caterpillar races, okay? That's not really exciting. Think about this. In due time, that caterpillar goes into its cocoon, and that caterpillar will come out a fantastic, totally different creature. In fact, think of butterflies. There are butterflies that migrate across oceans. Out in San Luis Obispo, California, every year, there, there are uh, butterflies that come from Asia. They'll migrate 3,000 miles across the ocean and come to San Luis Obispo. And you think about this. They started off as caterpillars. It would take caterpillar forever to get across the auditorium. But man, that thing totally changes in beauty, in function, in its very nature. That is the picture of a person who comes to saving faith. Being born again is not just a matter of your future destination. Being born again is a matter of total transformation. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. A new creature, a totally different creation. He's been totally changed by God. Let me tell you, I often say to people, yeah, I'll tell you what, God delivered me from a life of drinking and and immorality. And I say, you got saved when you were 10. Yeah, I did. Thank God I never did any of that stuff. He saved me early, and so I avoided it. Some of you say, I got saved later in life, and he saved you out of it. You know what? It doesn't matter if you got saved young or late. It doesn't matter if you did lots of sin before you were saved or seemingly little sin before you were saved. We equally need to be saved by God because there's none righteous, no, not one. But he'll transform us by his enabling grace. Transformation of life. 
But then I want you to see this. Meditation on the Word. Okay, how do you have your life transformed? By the renewing of your mind. I love the principle in Ephesians 4.22 that you put off the old man, which is corrupt according to the sea lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. That's Ephesians 4.22-24. Okay, think of the pattern there. So you put off the old, then you get renewed in your mind, and then you put on the new. That's really like getting a shower. Okay, so um, when, when Paul Smith took me to play golf this week, I'll, I'll tell you this, before I came to church that night, I went home and I got a shower. Good idea. I mean, every time I come home from doing a golf outing or hiking, my girls say things like, oh, Dad, you smell like the outside. <laughs> That's a nice way of saying, Dad, you're a sweaty mess. Go get a shower, right? So what happens? You jump in the shower. First thing you do is you put off the dirty clothes. You get in, wash up, and then you put on the clean clothes. That's the picture. Put off the old. Be renewing your mind. Now you're clean through the word which I've spoken unto you. And put on the new. I remember when I first started going to church and God started working on me about the music I used to listen to. See, I, I, I didn't grow up in a Bible preaching church. I didn't even grow up in a church that preached salvation by grace through faith. So I'm in public school. I got hooked on, you know, Queen, Led Zeppelin, Van Halen, ACDC. I mean, I was into all kinds of heavy metal. And I just thought it was entertainment. And then I started going to church and kids in my youth group were saying, you listen to what? And I told them, and they said, don't you know that's bad? I thought it was music. And then I started thinking about the message of all that I was listening to, and it was all about sex and drugs and rebellion. And then I realized, yeah, and the real draw to me is not the message, it's the beat, which is completely sensual. And I realized, yeah, I'm not listening to this for any good reason. No, I was addicted to it. So I remember saying, Lord, if you show me the music's wrong, I'll give it up. And man, my parents were going to this discipleship seminar, and I remember they came home and saying, oh, did you know there are over 500 references in the Bible to music? And they started showing, they didn't show me all 500, there's only a few. But uh, we started going through the music passages, like, you know, um, speaking to yourself in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and, and how David took a harp and played with his hand, and Saul was refreshed, and it was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. And that was just a ten-stringed harp, it wasn't even singing, it was just instrumental. And music had the power to affect him physically, emotionally, and spiritually. The evil spirit departed. And as I'm seeing all that, I thought, there is no way I could say that music is amoral. Music is not lacking morality. Music is inherently moral. And the music I was listening to was immoral. There was no question about it. And I remember the night I broke it all up, got rid of it. Okay, you know what's happening here? I'm being renewed in the spirit of my mind. I'm letting God's thinking shape my thinking. You know, if you do something just out of a list, you'll just go back to your old ways. Like, well, you know, I have this list. I'm supposed... Let, let God change your mind. That's why we need to teach the principles behind the applications. Okay, so, meditation on the Word. Joshua 1.8, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein, for then thou shalt make the way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. That's the only time you find the word success in the English Bible. Joshua 1.8. Interesting. Um, how do you become a success? You meditate in the Word of God. Okay, now the reason I put the cow up here, let me pull the caption up there. <clears throat> Whenever I think of the word meditate, I say it like this. Mm, meditate. Okay, you know why I do that? Because the cow is a creature that chews the cud. All right, and that's what the word meditate means. It means to chew the cud. 
So instead of just, uh, you know, when you read the Bible and, okay, let's say you're reading through the Bible and so you, it's the new year and you're in Genesis and, and one day somebody says, hey, what'd you read today? You said, uh, Genesis 37. What's that about? Uh, Joseph and the coat of many colors. Okay, so what'd you get out of your quiet time today? Don't wear a multicolored garment. Your brothers might get jealous and sell you into slavery. You know, you really, you didn't really make any application. You just read it. You, you know how you glean? You meditate. First Timothy 4.15. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them that thy profiting may appear to all. I keep a devotional journal. And every day I write down three R's. Read, reflect, and remember. So read. I write down what chapters did I read out of the Bible today. I just note that. Reflect is where I'll do this. Meditate. I'll, I'll chew the cud. And then remembers my journal entry, so I'll write what's going on, okay? But the reflect part is what's so important. I urge you to get a notebook, get a journal. I, I'm at the point now where I'll spend $17, $18 on a nice uh, kind of a faux leather journal, and I've got them lined up on my bookshelf. And I'll, I'll coordinate the notes in my Bible to those journals. So if I, I had a really good insight yesterday, so I write D. And that's for devotional note and then the date. So yesterday was 3, uh, 14, 23. And I'll write it in the margin of my Bible so I can go and pull that off. And I've got sometimes pages of notes from that. I will tell you something. You start writing down when you're reading the Word, it will help you to meditate. And as you're meditating on the Word, that's going to change your, your patterns of living, your patterns of thinking. Finally, he says this. There's substantiation of purpose. That's the main reason I had a slide today, because unless you have your phone app, you may not remember how to spell substantiation. Substantiation of purpose. What does it say? That you may prove, you can know without a doubt, that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Ivy and I were talking earlier this week, and we share a life verse. And I actually chose Psalm 37.4. She said, I put Psalm 37.4 and 5 together. Delight thyself also in the Lord. He shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him. He shall bring it to pass. Verse 23, same chapter says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. You know what God's saying? If you'll do my will with a surrendered heart, you'll end up doing what you want to do. What? You do my will with a surrendered heart, you'll end up doing what you want to do. Well, okay, like, I always wanted to win the lottery, so if I start delighting in God, I'm going to get the mega million pay- payout, right? Nope. <laughs> But you just said, if you delight in the Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart. One of two things happens. Either he fulfills desires which are God-given, or he changes desires that are flesh-driven. When I delighted in God, he started to speak to me about my raunchy music. And I remember I said, Lord, I'm willing to give it up. You know what happened? I gave it up, and he changed my desires. When I was complimenting Caleb for singing tonight, it's not like it's my ministerial duty to like that music. I like that music. How'd that happen? God changed my desires. I went from heavy metal headmanger to a lover of hymns and psalms and spiritual songs. That's God. And isn't it awesome when you're serving God out of delight, not out of duty? By the way, I always wanted to get married. Guess what? God gave me a wife. No, I always wanted to travel the world. I didn't think that would ever happen, but in my case, he gave me that desire, and I got to travel the world. Um, You know, I will say I didn't want to be a public speaker, but God changed that. First time I ever preached, I love it. I love it. Now you can probably tell, yeah, I know, you're kind of going. Yeah, okay, I need to land. But you know what? God changed that. When you delight in the Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart. And he says you can prove, you can know beyond a doubt, that good, acceptable, 
perfect will of God. Sometimes kids say, how do I know God's will for my life? Easy. Total surrender. Lord, what do you want me to do? And I'll tell you this, you will never regret that you say yes to God's will and no to you. Jesus said, if you save your life, you'll lose it. You lose his life for my sake. He says, you'll find it. Substantiation of purpose. That is just the first two verses of Romans chapter 12. Can you see why that preacher might have said, Romans 12 really summarizes what it means to be a disciple? Be a great study for you. Maybe tonight would be a good launching point for you to get into the rest of the chapter. But I will tell you what, the sacrifice of, of love is this. We love him because he first loved us. Let's bow our heads together. Thanks for listening so well tonight. Lord, I'm grateful for the pictures that you give us in the Word. I'm grateful for the declaration that you are merciful, kind, gracious, slow to anger. Help us to believe it. I'm sure there are people tonight, they do not yet know you as Savior. There are always people that come into our meetings that maybe they grew up religious. Maybe they know, you know, maybe going to church is nothing new. But help us to understand we don't get to heaven being religious. We don't get to heaven being a Baptist or a Protestant or a Catholic or an Episcopalian or, you know, we don't get to heaven by our denomination. We can only get to heaven by regeneration, by being born again. I pray you'd work in everyone who needs to know you, that you're loving, that you're drawing them to yourself, that you're desirous of saving them. And I'm thankful you did that for me. I pray for Christians. Help us to be people who surrender ourselves, who dedicate ourselves. Lord, what do you want me to do? Who meditate on your word, who are transformed by that and substantiate your purpose. We can know it. Heads are bowed. I'm going to ask you this tonight. How many of you, as I was preaching, you say, well, I'll tell you what. I definitely got mail from heaven tonight. There was something directly in the mailbox for me from God tonight. Anybody say that is me? I, I heard something I needed tonight. Yeah? Okay. So let me, uh, let me get a little more specific. We're going through motivation for love. I think all of us understand why he sent his son Jesus, and that ought to be the motivator. But the response then, the reason I call it sacrifice of love, is our dedication to God. How many of you have ever made a deliberate dedication of your life to the will of God? Would you lift your hand and you said, yes, Lord, whatever you want to do with my life, I'm going to do it. That's great. That's that's over a third of us. That might be close to half tonight. That's wonderful. All right, good. That being the case, that means there are probably at least 50% of us that could use this step. It's not a guilt trip. It's motivated by grace in light of his goodness. Who here tonight would say, Lord, I'm, I'll admit I'm scared about it, but I trusted you to save me. I certainly can trust you to direct my life. Lord, whatever you want to do with my life, I want to say once and for all, here am I. Send me. Would you hold up your hand? You say, I would say that to God tonight and mean it. Amen. Number of hands. Amen. See, we're praying the Lord of harvest would send forth labors into his harvest, but he will not send us against our will. It starts with a surrendered will. How many tonight as we looked at separation from the world would say, you know, I got convicted. We're talking about God being holy and too often I'm more conformed to the world than I am transformed by Christ. Anybody need that tonight? Yeah, I see several hands. How about the one of transformation of life? Metamorphosis. Totally changed from one form to another. How many would say that's, that's where I need to be in cooperation with God? I need to let him just do that transforming in me. Anybody need that one tonight? 
Meditation on the Word. Now, I, I want to tell you, this is really a crux of the whole matter here. If you're going to be transformed, you've got to make, make time to meditate, to chew the cut of truth. A lot of you have daily quiet time. In fact, how about I ask this? How many of you have a regular quiet time? It's, it's pretty much a daily occurrence in your life to read the Word. Would you hold up your hand and say, I have a daily quiet time? Good. A lot of people. How many of you who just raised your hand would say, that whole idea of meditating is going to help me? I want to do more than just read it. I want to chew on it. Anybody need that tonight? Yeah, a lot of hands. Okay. How many do not have a regular quiet time? You'd say, pray for me. I want to start there with a daily, regular quiet time. Amen. A lot of hands. And the blessing is substantiation. Once you take these steps, God says, you can know his good, acceptable, perfect will. Last question I'll ask you. If, if today were your final day, and we sure hope it's not, but one day it's going to be your final day. I'm talking about final day on earth. If you passed from this world into eternity, do you know with absolute certainty where you'd be? The Bible says it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. Are you 100%? Are you absolutely certain that you'd go to heaven when you die? Now, a number of people earlier said yes, because they're not trusting their own works to get them to heaven. They're trusting in Jesus Christ. But if I were talking to you one and one and I said, are you sure you'd go to heaven? Would, would you have to say, well, no, I, I don't know. Would you like to know? Listen, this is more than just a little matter of trivial pursuit. Your eternity depends on this. God wants you to be saved. I'm curious, is there anybody while I was preaching, you already called on the Lord to be your Savior during the message? I mentioned earlier, don't wait for the end. Did anybody already do that? Was there anybody here you said while you were preaching, I called on the Lord privately to become my Savior? Anybody like that? Is there anybody tonight you'd say, I need to do that? I don't know that I understood it earlier, but I do want to become a child of God through Jesus Christ Pray for me. Is there anybody like that? You would hold up your hand. Pray for me, Rich. I don't know that I'd go to heaven. I wouldn't embarrass you for the world. I won't point you out, but you'd say, pray for me. I don't know if I'd go to heaven. I don't know that I've been saved. I don't know that I'm part of God's family. Anybody like that at all? Maybe you have some questions. The pastor or I would be so happy to talk to you. We'll be out there in the foyer. Let's do this. Would you all look up at me? Thanks for coming this week. Thank you for being responsive. Let's stand together. We're going to have a brief invitation, but I think it's an important invitation. There's so many really key areas here. That's why I chose this passage of Scripture. I want to go out on a strong note of, okay, how do we become disciples? We focused on prayer all week. But, man, we need the Word. We need surrender. We need yieldedness. Frankly, folks, we need God. So with our heads bowed and eyes closed, I'm going to ask our pianist to play tonight, and I'm going to ask you to come. If God worked in your heart about an area... As our instrumentalists play, would you come tonight? You said, Lord, here's where you worked on me. I want to present my body a living sacrifice. Or, Lord, I'm, I'm too conformed to this world. Help me. Or I need to meditate on the word. I'm going to be quiet. I'm going to ask if God's dealing with your heart about one of these matters. Would you come?